reading from the book of 2 Kings in the 5th chapter, beginning at the first verse. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were the prophet, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The word of the Lord. In a famous 1962 speech at Rice University, one that you've all heard clips from at least, President John F. Kennedy talked about his decision to move the American space program from low to high gear. He called it one of the most important decisions that he would make as a president. You've probably all heard, like I said, the clip on TV or in a movie. But why, some say, the moon? Now, I'm 
not going to do the JFK accent for you. I know you're waiting for that, but it's not going to happen today. I'm going to have to wait for another day. Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon in this, in this decade and do the other things, and here's the money line, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept. One that we are unwilling to postpone. And one that we intend to win. It's rousing, right? Makes you want to go and run through a wall or fight a giant or something. Or, you know, fly to the moon. But you know what I can't help feeling when I hear that speech? I can't help but feel how unlike President Kennedy I am. I want to do the hard things, sort of. I want to climb the highest mountain. Really, I just want to be at the top of the highest mountain. But mostly, I find myself drawn to the easy things. I risk little. I hire somebody to clean my house, change the oil in my car, and do my taxes. But you know what? I'm embarrassed about that. It was. It was a big risk to even share those things with you. I want you to think that I clean my own house and change my own oil and do my own taxes, but it's just not true. I want to be more like Kennedy. I want to do the hard things. I want to do something that will make people stand up and cheer. Don't you? Don't you want to leave your mark? We want to do the hard things, and so we celebrate those who actually do them. We want to make a mark. We seek out a challenge, and we sort of get angry, don't we, when the challenge we set for ourselves gets undercut by somebody else. Like when somebody brings a GPS on the hike, we say, what are you doing? The risk of getting lost is sort of the whole point. We get angry when something that we want to be hard turns out to be easy. And in our reading this afternoon from 2 Kings, Naaman, an army commander, gets similarly angry when it turns out that he can easily have the thing he thought he'd have to work hard to get. You see, Naaman, as powerful a man as he is, a commander of the army, the right-hand man of his king, has a problem. He's got leprosy. But in a stroke of luck, he's from Damascus, and his army has just recently captured a slave girl from Samaria, and she says that she knows a prophet who can heal him. And so Naaman sets off on this journey. And he's geared up, right? He's got, he's outfitted. He's got 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He's ready to purchase his healing. He's got a royal amount of money. It's like 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. He can afford anything, and he's out to prove it. He gets to Samaria, and after his little meeting with the king, the prophet, Elisha, hears about his condition. So Naaman comes with his horses 
and his chariots, sort of flying the flag, right? Full regalia. Naaman shows up at Elisha's house. And Elisha sends a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And Naaman is furious. He says, I thought that for someone like me, surely the prophet himself would come up and sort of conjure some spell and wave his hands and call upon the Lord and work some kind of impressive trick and heal me. At least I thought he would come out of his house to welcome me. And so he starts to go off in a huff. He's going to leave. He's not going to do the thing that the prophet has told him to do. He's going to forego the healing because he's so mad that he has been so disrespected. Until his servants say, wait a minute. If the prophet had commanded you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? So it makes no sense now that you're leaving rather than do the easy thing He actually asked you to do. So Naaman turns around, does what the prophet has asked him to do, and is made clean. See, Naaman is like Kennedy, who said that we choose to do the hard thing because it measures the best of our energies and skills. In other words, in common parlance, we do the hard thing because it proves how awesome we are. We do the hard thing because other people will look and see how hard it was and how impressive it is that we accomplished it. Naaman comes to Samaria intending to overwhelm the prophet with his riches. Surely he'll be impressed with me, Naaman thinks, and do whatever he needs to do to make me whole. He's got all this silver and gold and beautiful clothing, and he rolls up to Elijah's house with all his horses and chariots. He wants nothing more than Elisha to notice how awesome he is, how important he is. But Elisha doesn't even deign to come out of his house He doesn't even want to see how many horses Naaman has or how much gold he's carrying or how large his retinue is. Elisha is not impressed. He sends a servant out to tell tell Naaman to go wash in the dirty Jordan River seven times. It's sort of the thank you, come again of healings. As little effort by the healer as possible. And Naaman is not happy. He's not happy because he's been embarrassed. Elisha seems to imply that Naaman's not even worth getting up for, much less healing. Naaman is somehow not worthy of Elisha's full attention. And of course, there's no quicker way to make somebody furious than to imply that they're not worthy of you. I think it's interesting to note that Naaman is angry for two reasons. First, that he's not worthy of Elisha's attentions. And second, he's actually angry that the solution he's given to his problem is so simple. I thought that for me, he says, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Naaman wants a complicated ritual that he has to participate in. And when he's told to just go to the local river and wash, 
he thinks that that's something he could just as well have done himself. Naaman's mad because the thing he was given to do, the thing that will heal him, is too simple. He wants a ritual. He wants a recipe with all sorts of steps that he has to follow. Fifteen steps to be cleansed from leprosy. He'd rather it be 25 or 50 or 75 steps. He's angry that he's not getting a long assignment. If he can't earn his healing by purchasing it with his extravagant wealth, he wants to earn it by his faithful obedience. Showing Elisha that he'll follow any number of complicated steps, any kind of arcane ritual that the prophet can come up with. It's crazy, right? But this is a kind of crazy that we all share. You men here today, remember when your father told you that you should, you should do something because it would put hair on your chest? I don't know what the female equivalent of that is, but for us guys, our fathers were forever telling us that we should do this thing that we didn't really want to do because it would be good for us, right? It would strengthen us. It would put hair on our chests. Talk about a mixed blessing, right? They didn't tell us anything about the repercussions of potentially having too much hair on our chest. But we're attracted to the hard thing, the thing that we think will build us up, the thing that will put hair on our chests. We want to earn our chest hair. We have this innate desire to do things the hard way so that we can turn around and then say, look what I did. Look what I was able to accomplish. It's just like Kennedy said in that speech. We climb the highest mountain. We sail across the sea. We go to the moon. We do these things to prove ourselves. And this is why we're suspicious about things that are given away for free. It must be junk, right? What can it possibly be worth if they're giving it away for free? Christians have the same suspicions. We can't handle being given something for free, and certainly not forgiveness, the love of God, and eternal life. That sets the scales of our lives totally off kilter. We want desperately to earn everything we get. We want to take credit for what we have. We want to have earned the hair on our chests. We are like Naaman, incensed. That our riches, our spiritual quality, and our obedience are not required for our healing. The prophet says, no thank you. I don't care. Your money is no good here. And so for Christians who would never say out loud that we earn our salvation, we think, well, if we can't earn our salvation, we can at least struggle to retroactively purchase it by becoming people for whom such a substitutionary sacrifice is not such a scandal. Right? If Jesus is going to give me this wonderful thing for free, then I'm going to earn it after the fact. I'm going to become a person that anybody else will look at and say, of course Jesus died for him. Look what a good guy he is. Of course Jesus loves her. Look at all the wonderful things she does. 
We get angry like Naaman. Jesus is going to die for me, is he? Well, just wait until he sees what I'm going to do for him. We want to do something hard. We want to do something impressive. We want to earn God's favor. And even though we admit that we can't earn it up front, if we understand that we can't pay for God's favor, we vow to pay it back. We fear something that's too easy, both because we don't understand it and because we've been convinced that something easy isn't worth anything. Naaman's servants have it right, though. Having prepared ourselves to do something hard, having girded up our loins, ready to pay back Jesus for his wonderful gift, shouldn't we be grateful that we've been asked to do something easy? Having convinced ourselves that a righteous life is the path to God's love, shouldn't we be overjoyed that God's love has been given to us for free? Our resistance to our no-cost salvation shows an ignorance of the most crucial tenet of our faith. While no pain, no gain is quite true, there is no gain without pain. The pain was suffered by another, by a substitute, by a savior. And it is over. This easy thing, this free gift, is worth more than anything else in the world. Our pain, no gain. Jesus' pain, our gain. No charge. Amen.